from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling in The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington this Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, November 16th. Today, will there ever be another stimulus? The national security costs of a messy transition and COVID tests at home. Over the last few weeks, we've seen tremendous increases in COVID cases, hospitalizations, and lockdowns um, in many states and cities begun to be discussed or implemented. And yet, for all of this frenetic activity and all these dangers materializing across the country, Congress is basically doing nothing. And negotiations over another relief package that would help Americans get through what we're seeing are basically at a standstill. My name is Jeff Stein. I'm the White House economics reporter for The Washington Post. It's hard to overstate the potential pain that Americans could face if there isn't a stimulus deal. Not only are 20 million plus people already going without federal unemployment assistance, um, another 13 million or so people will lose all unemployment benefits if they're gig workers or contractors. There's also the, the base benefits that people get on unemployment, their state benefits. Those will end by the end of the year for many people. And then there's an eviction moratorium that's protecting millions of renters. That's going to expire. And we're looking at, in particular sectors of the economy, severe pain without government support. One million travel jobs are at stake. The number that I, I tell friends and family that, that I find so shocking is 40% of restaurants say they face closure hmm. um, by the end of February without federal support. 40%. Wow. I mean, think about your favorite 10 restaurants. Imagine four of them going out of business and all of their wait hmm. staff, all of their kitchen workers, cashiers, all, all of them going um, home without unemployment benefits and without their jobs. So it's a very, very scary moment. And it's not a controversial thing at this point to say that that more federal support is likely necessary. This is something Republicans and Democrats agree on, but they haven't aligned on how to do it yet. And before we talk about why they can't figure out a way to agree, I do think it's also worth talking about the fact that the stimulus bill also has effects on the pandemic itself and the rise in infection rates around the country. Like, not just because there could potentially be money for testing and for contact tracing, but because as you have local and state leaders deciding whether or not to put their communities on lockdown again, the only way that's feasible is if there will be money to help people who will lose their income as a result. And if there's no money to help those people get through a lockdown, then it gets a lot harder to put those lockdowns in place and the virus continues to spread. It's a really great point. And it brings to mind a healthcare worker I, I spoke with months ago, sort of closer to the beginning of the pandemic, who was able to stay home. Um, this person had a, had a very sick mother and had a lot of pre-existing conditions and, you know, was acutely vulnerable to COVID. And that person was able to stay home because of the federal unemployment benefits. But without those, they might have to go into work and as a result, put not only themselves, but their family at risk. Um, and that's that's a really scary prospect. And the alternative for them not to be able to pay rent or eat is obviously not a feasible alternative either. 
And I think people are starting to understand that the lack of continued government support is part of the reason why we're seeing these growing infection rates now. Um, Ron Klain, who is now President-elect Biden's new chief of staff, he was on Meet the Press on Sunday, and he was asked about this same idea. You've heard Dr. Ostrom, every expert has said, if we're going to, we might have to have a temporary shutdown, but we can't do it if you're not going to basically pay these people not to open their businesses. Can't do that without Congress agreeing to something. How urgently do you think House Democrats, Senate Republicans, their loggerheads, do you take what you can get now or do you support Speaker Pelosi holding out? Well, the president-elect had a conversation with Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer on Friday And they talked about the need to get urgent action. I mean, we need action during the lame duck. There's a lot of things that are going to have to wait until Joe Biden is president. But this is not one of them. So if you say that both Republicans and Democrats recognize the magnitude of the needs here, then why is it that it seems so impossible for them to get on the same page with passing some kind of bill? President Trump and the White House took a very long time to ramp up discussions for a second stimulus deal. And then with the election approaching, the politics became very challenging. There were some Democrats who thought, you know, why are we going to give Trump the ability to, you know, put his name on checks to 80 million Americans right before the election? A lot of Democrats deny that. They said that they were holding out for a better deal. We'll see what happens in the next few months. This is complicated by the fact that there's two races right now for control of the Senate happening in Georgia. There's a lot of people who think Mitch McConnell will be more likely to get a deal. So the Georgia Republican Senate candidates can say, look, the Republican Senate is serious about providing economic support to the American people. My sources in the White House, I mean, somewhat somewhat staggeringly, have acknowledged that the White House is now taking a back seat and sort of not, not expected to even propose something else on the stimulus. I mean, it sort of suggests that Trump's interest in the stimulus all along has been in large part politically motivated. Uh, maybe that, you know, I'm not saying that they wouldn't sign anything, but the fact that Trump is sort of backtracking on his consistent advocacy for a stimulus package is um, worrisome, I think, for a lot of people. And and when we talked about this last, which was before the election, you had projected that something like this could happen if Trump lost, that any incentive there was for him to try to get through a stimulus bill after the election would basically evaporate. But it seems like what you're saying is that the one saving grace here is that if control of the Senate is still in play and if there's going to be this very high profile couple of runoffs in Georgia in January, that that is a thing that Senate Republicans could be serious about in terms of trying to pass something before that. Yeah, I mean, this this could be a chance for Republicans to put their money where their mouth is. Mitch McConnell has passed a couple different stimulus proposals, including one, you know, over $500 billion. I think another one was about a trillion. And a lot of conservatives think that even though Republicans voted for that, they did that knowing Pelosi would reject it. Hmm. And it remains to be seen whether the right flank in particular of the Republican caucus would support even a $500 billion bill. This could force them to to show what their cards really are. People will remember, of course, that during the Obama years, the conservative wing of the Republican Party made a ton of noise about the deficit and debt. 
the deficit and debt, you know, with Trump leaving office are higher than they've ever been. And without Trump brushing aside Republican concerns about the deficit, does that mean Ted Cruz and other conservatives like that come back out of the woodwork and say, we need to get serious about the deficit now um, with Biden coming in? Hmm. That's going to be a, a clue, not just about the current stimulus, but about, you know, whether Biden and what, what, Congress does to propel us out of this economic malaise we're in throughout the rest of his administration. But the one thing is that Biden is a former member of the Senate. He has this history of being a negotiator. He has a relationship with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. So do we expect that he would be able to pull on some levers that haven't been pulled on yet in terms of actually executing something? There does appear to be a degree of personal uh, comedy. There's a relationship there that Biden and McConnell have a mutual respect for each other. People in the Obama White House will note that, you know, McConnell and Obama really didn't get along. Um, Most congressional Republicans did not get along with Obama, but the Biden-McConnell relationship was quite good during, you know, the eight years of Obama. And when there was a crisis that needed to be negotiated with Congress, the Obama people tended to send Joe. Biden, in his victory speech after the election, spoke a lot about reaching out to Republicans, working with Republicans, that his mandate, as he saw it, was to reach out to the middle and forge compromises with the other party. But this is not the Congress of when Obama was in office. It's not certainly not the Congress of when Joe Biden was a senator cutting deals with Uh, Republicans in the Northeast and Democrats in the South, you know, this country is much more polarized than it was. And that era of backroom deals and backslapping that that Biden so fondly remembers may not be there anymore. And so that's that's one of the big questions. Um, Can Biden reverse engineer what's happened in the last few years in Congress? I I think it's going to be really hard. Jeff Stein is a White House economics reporter for The Post. Right now, Congress should come together and pass a COVID relief package like the HEROES Act that the House passed six months ago. Once we shut down the virus and deliver economic relief to workers and businesses, then we can start to build back better than before. Today, in a speech on the economy, President-elect Joe Biden called for Congress to come together and pass a stimulus package. But how much can a president-elect do to move that conversation forward without the current president conceding? What do you see as the biggest threat to your transition right now, given President Trump's unprecedented attempt to obstruct and delay a smooth transfer of power? More people may die if we don't coordinate If we have to wait until January 20th to start that planning, it puts us behind over a month, month and a half. What needs to formally change hands or be turned over in order for this process to go smoothly? So there are multiple things that need to change. The biggest is personnel. David Marchek is director of the Center for Presidential Transition at the Partnership for Public Service. He spoke to my colleague Allison Michaels for the Post podcast, Can He Do That? They talked about the national security implications of a delayed transition. And I found this episode really enlightening and wanted to share some of it with you here. A new president has to appoint 4,000 political officials. 1,250 need to be confirmed by the Senate. 
And that process takes a long time. So I'll give you one data point. President Obama had the fastest and smoothest transition to power, not only because he was well-organized, but also because George W. Bush did a really good job handing over power to Obama. Of the 1,250 Senate-confirmed positions, at day 100, Obama only had 69 confirmed. 69. And by the end of the full year, he had less than a third of all the positions confirmed. So it takes a long time to staff a government. We're now in a pandemic. We have a deep economic crisis. We have a social crisis. And we have a political crisis. And so should Vice President Biden win, he needs to hit the ground running on day one. One thing an incoming president needs is knowledge about the national security threats facing this country. Are there circumstances where a president might not receive the intelligence he needs, or or are there safeguards to ensure that he does? So the law does outline a whole set of requirements for uh, national security-related issues in a transition, including access to intelligence agencies. The access to security clearances pre-election is really important. That way, Should there be a change in administration, the day after the election, typically the challenger will send three, four, 500 people into the agencies. And that includes sending people with security clearances into the national security agencies. It's been an area of nonpartisanship. It's an area where people take continuity of power very, very seriously. And elections are tough, but transitions traditionally are executed clearly and in a nonpartisan manner. Obviously, you go back to FDR, and when he died, Harry Truman took over. Harry Truman was kept totally in the dark. And about 100 days after Truman took office, he made the fateful decision to drop a nuclear bomb on Japan to end the war. And so when Truman left office, he tried to get both Eisenhower and Stevenson to think about transition planning, to meet with him to start the process because Truman felt like Roosevelt kept him in the dark and he didn't want the next president to be kept in the dark the same way. And so that led to a whole series of discussions which led to the legislation in 1963. And how has that legislation since evolved? So the legislation has been improved three or four times. For example, after the disputed election in 2000 between Bush v. Gore, that transition was shortened from 75 days to around 37 days. And the decision was made that the challenger at the time, George W. Bush, would not benefit from all the transition services. So Congress passed legislation after that disputed election that basically mandated that the challenger in a disputed election should benefit from all those services. Another example is post 9-11. George W. Bush came into office. He had a shortened transition. And eight months later, obviously two planes hit the Twin Towers. The 9-11 Commission report, when they did their autopsy on what happened on 9-11, found that Bush didn't have all his people in place. And one of the reasons he didn't have all his people in place was because those people didn't have security clearances. And so they mandated that the FBI grant security clearances to challengers' campaigns even before the election. Experts say that the transition period from one president to the next is a vulnerable time from a national security perspective. But this transition is especially scary, as national security reporter Shane Harris explained. Well, a couple things. I mean, one is that the transition itself is not actually proceeding as a normal transition would, which is to say that the president hasn't really 
cooperated with it. Of course, he hasn't even conceded the election. And the General Services Administration, which kind of has to fire the starting pistol to allow all of these agency teams on the Biden transition to start meeting with their counterparts in government, that hasn't happened either. So there's that. We're in the midst of a pandemic, which is clearly a national security crisis. So there's the imperative for the new incoming team to meet with the old ones and figure out you know, what they're doing or what they're not. And then we have sort of the added complication of, you know, what's the president going to do when he leaves? And is he going to start declassifying things that he knows? Or is he going to try and declassify information even before he leaves that he thinks will be beneficial to him politically? So all of this is kind of combining to make this a really unusual, I think, dare say, unprecedented transition. But normally in a transition period, there is some vulnerability baked into the American system, right? In terms of national security, what normally exists in that regard? Normally in a transition, it's the period where a lot of people in national security positions fear that a foreign country might try to take advantage of the kind of flux that's going on as the old crew is leaving and a new one is coming in. There are some people who will point out that in other governments as well, when there's a transition of power, that's a time where it might be uniquely vulnerable to a terrorist attack or some kind of intervention from an adversary. And really, your own political system is kind of, you know, I guess, unstable is one way of thinking about it. That's maybe a little less so with this incoming Biden team because they were just there four years ago and they're pretty deeply experienced. But there's always in this period of change where the baton is kind of being handed off a time where the government is perhaps focused on that transition, a little less maybe on other priorities. And there's kind of just a natural sense of having to do two things at once. Of course, that transition is not really happening right now, so that may not be as applicable. So you've just explained how it would work ideally, as you put it. Clearly, what's happening now is not exactly ideal. The Post reported that a Trump administration appointee, the head of the General Services Administration, is refusing to sign a letter that would allow President-elect Joe Biden's transition team to formally begin its work. What real implications does that have, both generally and then specifically in reference to national security? Well, generally what it means is a couple things. One is that because the transition hasn't begun, the government is, and the Trump administration, is not conveying to the public that it believes the incoming administration is legitimate. It hasn't really conferred upon it that status that we always expect a president to do when he's lost election. On a practical level, what it means is that there are hundreds of people in the Biden transition whose job it is to go into those agencies, learn how they work, get up to speed, and they're simply not having those meetings. I mean, they can talk to people in Congress, they can talk to people informally who they might know in some of these agencies, and plenty of people on the Biden team will know people in in the agencies, but they can't sit down and do the actual work of transition that's become this kind of repeated, consistent process over the years where you make sure there are no hiccups as you're handing off power from one to the other. So that's not happening. And on the national security side, what it means is the incoming Biden team, for instance, doesn't know what covert actions the CIA is engaged in. It may not have the most recent information on forces that are deployed uh, into world hotspots. It may not have the most recent information on, for instance, what China is up to. I mean, we just saw some really dramatic developments this week in Hong Kong with pro-democracy lawmakers essentially being silenced. There's concern that China might try some kind of acquisition of territory from Taiwan during the transition in this vulnerability we've talked about. The Biden team's not really getting the latest information on what the military knows about that. So it's 
risky because when they hit the ground running on January 20th, you don't want them to get in there and have to start from standing still. And that's the risk that we have when the transition teams aren't talking to one another. I'm curious, too, how it's all perceived abroad. Specifically, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was asked whether the State Department was participating in the transition, and he said they were planning for a second term of the Trump administration. Yet Biden has already begun making calls to foreign leaders as the president-elect, and those leaders have publicly congratulated him on his win as well. So what kind of national security challenges does this sort of dual messaging pose for the U.S.? I think messaging is part of it, right? I mean, there is a sense that the U.S. government is kind of a mess right now. It's it's in this sort of period of chaos. But the transition proceeds. And as you noted, these foreign leaders are reaching out to Joe Biden and saying, you're the president-elect, you're the guy we're going to do business with. And that continues as normal. Foreign governments, I mean, you know, as a rule, stay out of our domestic politics, but they pay extremely close attention to them. I I know from just talking to sources of mine and other governments, they're planning for Biden to be the person that they deal with, but they're sort of watching this enormously tumultuous period. And they're kind of both a little bit aghast because they think, you know, this is not how things are normally done. But they're also not surprised because this is exactly how Trump has operated for four years. And by now they're kind of used to it. From the standpoint of the orderly and peaceful transition of power, I thought it was a very encouraging thing that so many foreign governments did the thing which even President Trump won't do, which is to recognize Joe Biden as the president-elect. I think that speaks to stability and to continuity. Secretary Pompeo's statement was baffling and frankly outrageous. Even if he thought that he was joking, it's not funny to have the senior-most cabinet official essentially saying, we are planning as if Donald Trump is going to be here on January 20th at this period of maximum tension that we're in right now. That doesn't send a great message to our allies. At the same time, I'm sure many of them are sort of looking at what Pompeo said and kind of shaking their heads and rolling their eyes and thinking, well, you know, you're not going to be here on January 20th, so let's just move on. There's a lot of different threads here. What have your sources in the intelligence community told you that they're most concerned about in this delayed transition process? Their concerns are, I think, twofold. One, are more systemic. The idea that by not conceding and insisting that there was some kind of voter fraud for which there is no evidence, that the president will convince millions, tens of millions of people that Joe Biden isn't the legitimate president. And they're deeply worried about the systemic strain that that puts on our democracy. I mean, that's a fairly existential problem. There are others who worry about, on a kind of more tactical level, the kinds of things that he could do in the next 70 or so days. Could he start recklessly declassifying information that might expose sources and methods of intelligence? That could be really bad. Could he launch some kind of ill-advised military action? There's worry about that. Would he try and use military forces to go onto the streets to quell protests or somehow project some kind of image of law and order, as he likes to say? There's concern about that as well. I have to say that every day that goes by and I talk to sources, the possibility starts to creep into their mind just a little bit more that he might do something genuinely crazy. (laughs) I don't know what other word to apply to it. And once he leaves office, presuming he does, in fact, leave office, are there risks in the fact that he now has a lot of intelligence knowledge that he's built up over time? Is there concern he could use that in some way that could harm our national security? Yeah, this is another thing current and former officials I've been talking to in the past couple of weeks worry that because he has a history of carelessly, even inadvertently, declassifying information that has jeopardized sources and methods, that he might continue doing that. 
you know, in his speech or at a dinner that he's attending? Will he start bragging about things that he knows? Will he accidentally let something slip that he doesn't think is that revealing, but that an adversary might see as kind of a missing puzzle piece they've been looking for? And, you know, candidly, there are those who say, look, he is massively in debt. This information that he has in his head could be valuable. Do we have to consider the prospect that the president might, if not outright sell information that's classified, might feel inclined to share it with people with whom he has a business relationship as some kind of, you know, quid pro quo? People are really worried about this right now. And again, I don't think that they would be if he didn't have a history of violating norms and selectively and recklessly declassifying information. If he had behaved like a normal president, frankly, with regards to all of the sensitive information, you wouldn't have this kind of acute anxiety right now about what he's going to do as an ex-president and how he could continue to do damage to national security. Shane Harris is a national security reporter for The Post. He was speaking with Allison Michaels, the host of Can He Do That?, It's a podcast here at The Post that explores the powers and limitations of the presidency. To listen to more from them, find a link in our show notes today, or subscribe to Can He Do That on your podcast app. And now, one more thing. Something that would be really useful right now as you're seeing all of these cases surging of coronavirus is if people could test themselves at home. If you had a cheap at-home coronavirus test that could tell you within minutes whether or not you're positive for the virus. These kinds of home coronavirus tests are being developed by a lot of companies and very likely going to come online this winter. But there's a lot of hurdles that they're struggling to overcome before that can happen. I'm William One. I'm a national health reporter for The Washington Post. So there's a couple of problems standing in the way of us getting these at-home virus tests. One really big one is just ease of use. If you're going to be selling these to people who use untrained at home, they have to be super easy. The kind of holy grail of this is something similar to a pregnancy test. You know, anyone can use it. Very easy to tell, you know, whether you're positive or negative. The second thing is these tests have to be a lot more accurate than they are right now. This is because you're going to be giving these to consumers at home who have to interpret the results on their own. It doesn't come with like a doctor telling them, yes, it's negative, but, you know, there could be these circumstances. Yes, it's positive, and so you should be doing these things. So it has to be a lot more accurate if you're going to leave it up to the consumers to interpret the results. So home tests do exist already. You can even get them at Costco for like $100 plus dollars. But the thing with these home tests is they're expensive. They require people to mail their sample into a lab, and it can take 24 to 48 hours or even longer for results. So they're not yet the cheap, rapid result tests that we're looking for in the ideal world. 
to get those, you know, we have at least two dozen companies racing to be the first to kind of get their home test to the market. Most of them are based on this kind of science called antigen testing. That It looks for these certain proteins on the surface of the virus instead of looking for DNA like a lot of the most accurate tests do. And so some of these companies are really close to clearing those final barriers of accuracy and ease of use. Once we have these at-home kind of tests that you could do by yourself, the idea is anyone can buy them. You could go to your CVS or Walgreens and just pick one up before you go out on a trip. If you suspect that you're starting to get symptoms, you could just rapidly know within minutes if you are positive. The other idea, which is perhaps even more useful, though, is you could arm contact tracers, clinics with them. If a community, like say your neighborhood, starts seeing an outbreak, you could just start passing out hundreds of these cheap at-home tests to the neighborhood and get that outbreak under control. So these could be really game-changing as a tool, but there's two um, main drawbacks to them that a lot of experts are worried about. One is that people will think of them as kind of one-and-done exercises. So you take a test, then you're negative, and you can go and do whatever you want. The, the reality is you could take a test, any kind of test, and show negative in, in the morning, and by evening you're positive. And so people should not treat them as like clearance to do anything. And they should, ideally you would be taking them frequently. So like every few days, a few days in a row before you're, you're going somewhere. Um, the other major drawback is there's no data collection for the results right now. All the lab tests, they're fed into state agencies. They're put into these dashboards. This is how we know how many cases we have every every day, every week. With these uh, rapid at-home tests, there would be no data reported. Um, there's just no system set up for that right now. So the worry is we as a country could be flying blind in terms of our ability to fight the virus and track it. William One is a health reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you rely on Post Reports to get your news, you can support us by subscribing to The Washington Post. We have a special offer just for our listeners. You can get digital access to The Post for a whole year at postreports.com offer. We'll link to that in our show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 